Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikvat Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us on Zoom Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. For the Zoom link, please contact tikvatdirector at gmail.com, or you can contact us on our website, tikvatisrael.com. There, you can also support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and find helpful resources. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of His Word. Shabbat Shalom everyone here. Shabbat Shalom everybody by podcast. Shabbat Shalom everybody at home on Wi-Fi land. Always glad to have you. I got to admit, I mean, I had a different way that I was going to open the sermon, but I was so moved by the way Logan read that, that drosh, I mean, read that uh, New Testament part. Um, the Spirit moves, brothers and sisters. Stick around. I would also like to say that Logan and I did not converse nary a second nor a word about what he was going to read today nor what I was going to read today. The Spirit moves. Well, could I get that first slide up there? This happens to be exactly the Parsha what Logan just read. Hebrew is awesome. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to demonstrate how it just kind of paints pictures in your imagination. This, brothers and sisters, is the end of Luke 24. It's this week's Parsha of our Chaye Yeshua cycle. Two very forlorn, depressed men are walking together. All of their dreams have been shattered. They had thought that the Messiah had come. But yet this glorious son of David who was supposed to come from the clouds and free them from Roman occupation was crucified in the most abominable, shameful way that one could imagine. They had heard rumors that maybe he had risen from the dead, but these, of course, were just rumors. A third man who they did not recognize joined them on their walk. Hearing their depression and desperation, the stranger began to unlock the mysteries of the prophecies within the Torah as it alludes to the coming Messiah as spoken by Moses, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, among others. That not only might this Yeshua of Nazareth actually be legit, but that God in his infinite wisdom and love might have plans other than a heavenly cacophony of angels on white horses to present this Messiah to the world. The two men begged this man, please, please come in and eat with us. The three sit, the stranger took bread, blessed it, broke it, offered it, and the two men suddenly realized that this man was indeed Yeshua, the Messiah of God. Yeshua then disappeared. I want to examine this verse right here, the same one that the Spirit put on Logan. Wow. 
If you could back up a, a slide, please. If you could back up a slide, please. Jason, back up one to the beginning. This verse right here, verse 32, and they said one unto another, uh, look here, or it, it, isn't it that within our hearts there was a burning or a kindling that came out from within us as he spoke unto us on the path and opened unto us the scriptures. There are two words from here that I definitely want to point out. Go, go forward a slide. Let's go forward a slide, please. Ah, here we go. It's definitely two words that I want to draw to everyone's attention. Now, this word right here, it basically means a kindling, like lighting a fire, kindling a big fire, okay? This verb right here means to take out or draw out, kind of like water from a well, okay? But this is also in a Hebrew sense, I think it's the pe'el or something like this, and it basically means an intensive action. So what this is really saying is, did not he kindle a fire out from within us that smoldered. It's very visual. And I have the image in my head of a match being struck and that first spark to an actual flame that is within it the power to light an entire fire until it absolutely smolders within a person. Now look at me and nod if you have ever felt what these two men felt. Maybe it was on the birth of your son or your daughter and you held that baby in your arms the first time and you just smoldered for that child. Maybe it was holding your grandchild for the first time and you just smoldered holding that child. Maybe it was your wedding day when you looked down the aisle and you saw the love of your life and you just smoldered for that person. Maybe you smolder for a good friend, a dear friend that you've had your entire life, or even a beloved pet. But all of us have felt that feeling that these two men felt on that wonderful day. So from here, we're going to switch gears a little bit. I want us to experience together another familiar feeling that also all of us have felt before, albeit a not very pleasant one. Something uncomfortable and downright weird. So here it is. High school. Middle school. We've all been there. I want you to kind of close your eyes and I want you to remember your first day of middle school or your first day as a freshman in high school. Everyone was there. You've all been there. I want you to remember what it was like being in the lunch line in the cafeteria. And you come out of the cafeteria and you have your tray and you see this sea of upperclassmen. 
and you look desperately from someone even that you've nodded heads to in the hall to sit with. You scan the room and I'm like, ugh. You feel that dull anxiety in the pit of your stomach and you say to yourself, okay, where do I belong here? And you guys know exactly what I mean. I mean, whether you were at the top or the bottom of that hierarchy, whether you were you know, a nerd or whether you were one of the popular kids, you still felt that feeling. Whether you were in the middle and, you know, that many of us were. Everybody here, everybody listening by podcast remembers the hierarchy of middle school and high school. This guy right here is not going to be sitting at the jocks table. This guy right here is not going to be sitting at the cheerleaders table or with the preppies. This guy right here is going to be sitting with his other goths and punks. And we were not discussing what the men's basketball team did that last Thursday. We didn't even know if the men had a basketball team. What we discussed was that clan of Zymox might be on tour with Susie and the Banshees, and Depeche Mode might headline. That's what we talked about. I want us all to remember when we were this age, that ugh feeling, and I want you to go a step further. I want you to imagine a world where this middle school, high school, social hierarchy of the elite and the underlings never goes away, and in fact is amplified 100 times, 100,000 times more than it's possible for even us in this century at this time to imagine. At least here in the modern world, after high school, we can go to a university, we can join the military, we can go to trade school, we can start over and we can reinvent ourselves, so to speak. This was not so in the ancient world. The class that you were born into, brothers and sisters, was the class that you were going to remain in for your entire life, and most likely your children and your grandchildren. No idea of an American dream by moving from a lower class to a higher class based on hard work and perseverance. That did not exist. Yes, there were certain people in the ancient world that had a specialized skill or trade that made more money than your average bear. But this did not mean that you were going to receive an invitation in the mail to dine with the local Roman prefect. You were either the 100%, excuse me, the 1% of the ancient world that was the very, very rich ruling class, or more likely, you were the 99% of everyone else who were very, very poor and just scraped by. No middle class in the ancient world. I don't care what the textbooks say you. Middle class wasn't a thing until the late Middle Ages. To a 20th century Westerner, it's no better way to show off your wealth than to accumulate stuff Cars, houses, pools, properties. In the ancient world, there was no better to show off one's wealth than to hold a symposium. 
at your home. We still use this word symposium in English today. It's actually an ancient Greek word that basically means to put something together, namely a dinner party, a gathering for an all-night luxurious, luxurious feast. It was a way for the host of the symposium to show off their high status and to show how beneath them everyone else were. Pardon me. Now, of course, these symposiums served also as business, ga business gas gatherings. One could definitely network at a symposium, and they definitely served that function. However, the dirty underside of that networking is that one could show off and possibly exchange slaves among your dinner guests. That was done a lot. Now, this symposium always took place in three stages. And we have innumerable, I mean, we have, we have more sources from the ancient world that describe symposiums than we have time to read them. Um, first of all, okay, everybody look at the overhead. I want you to imagine maybe a room, including the foyer there, as big as this sanctuary here. Big square room, as big as this sanctuary, okay? In the center of the room would be a horseshoe shape of the most luxurious couches with the most luxurious material that you could imagine. The rich host and his closely honored invited guests would recline on these couches and eat with their right hands from tables that were put in the middle of the room. The servants would bring their tables loaded with food brought to the center of this horseshoe. The, the host would sit at the apex of this horseshoe. The second most important person, if the host was here in the apex of the horseshoe, the second most important person would be sitting at the host's right. The third most important person would either be beside that person or to the host's left. And we definitely see reflections of this in the Brit HaChadashah, especially in Yohanan. Now, the least important, if the most important are sitting here in a horseshoe shape, the second tier, not so important of you, would be in a circle surrounding that horseshoe. The less important of you in this social strata would sit in circles around the host. And whereas in this area, the central area, you might be reclining on couches, in this second circle, you might be reclining but on mats on the floor. Whereas in the outermost concentric circle, you would be most likely sitting crisscross applesauce on little mats with raised kind of platforms that served as small tables in front of you where you would eat from. And at these symposiums, based on your status, even the menu would be different, brothers and sisters. For instance, if you were at the host table, you might be feasting on filet mignon and asparagus with Bernays sauce and Parmesan and dill roasted potatoes. 
the second circle around you might be getting, you know, fried chicken and french fries. The third layer sitting on the floor might be getting warmed up frozen fish sticks and potato chips. Now in addition, beloved sisters, don't kill the messenger, but you, <laughs> you were not invited. This was a man's world only. Women were not allowed into the dining room unless you were a servant or a prostitute. Stick around. More on that later. If a woman was to accompany her husband into the walls of a symposium, that man would be laughed out of the room. And this is another characteristic in common with the hierarchy within the ancient world that, uh, with that of middle school and high school, and that is public shaming. And this is why the story of Zacchaeus is so profound. Because when he climbed the sycamore tree and brought attention to himself, with his status in that society, he could have lost everything. He could have been shamed out of Jericho. That's what makes us, that story so profound, by the way. In the ancient world, and really up until our lifetime, <laughs> nobody cared about your feelings. Nobody cared about your self-esteem. Remember, brothers and sisters, in the ancient world, you were of the 99% poor and struggling because the gods had ordained you to be in that role. That was your lot in life. If you were a servant or a slave, it was because the gods had ordained you to be so. If you were upper crust, aristocratic, or ruling class, it was because the gods had ordained you to be there. Moving on. The second part of the symposium was the wine, and boy, was there a lot of it. People would drink to excess, which would dovetail smoothly into the third part of the symposium. The servants would clear out the tables that the food had been served on and move all the couches and the mats to the perimeter of the room, the host still having a prominent place on his couches. And then the entertainment would happen. And depend on, depending on how rich you are, this entertainment could take the form of a uh, kind of a drunken philosophical discussion about the meaning of life or current events within the empire, or a simple game where they would kind of, you know, draw a circle in the middle of the room and try to, you know, flick sediment from their wine glasses in it, and whoever got in the center of the circle won a prize. Um, the more wealthier and the more decadent you were, those that could afford it might really show off your status by hiring a group of, let's say, ladies of the night, and that would be the entertainment. And yeah, where your imaginations are right now is probably very accurate. Um, and, you know, if that in itself were not sleazy enough, this is kind of where it, bear with me, this is kind of where it just gets so repulsive, it's, it's really difficult to talk about. Remember, brothers and sisters, that how you were on earth was how the gods had made you. 
that was your lot in life. So if you were born with some kind of physical or mental defect, the ancient world did not feel the need to coddle you and protect you from the rest of society. And again, brothers and sisters, we have many, many writings that are disgustingly casual about describing that it was very all too common to bring in someone or even a group of people with physical or mental handicaps as the entertainment. And the host guests would point at them, laugh at them, make fun of them, degrade them, all in their drunken states until the wee hours of the morning. Yeah, this happened a lot. Now, within the land itself of Israel and Judea, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were all upper crust aristocrats. They were from aristocratic families that lived off the riches of the Jerusalem temple. And Pharisees and Sadducees would hold symposiums. The Sadducees, because they might want to butter up their Roman overlords. The Pharisees, because they might want to, I don't know, show off to the family of the high priest. Now, especially the Pharisees, they would observe strict, 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 strict ritual, purity, hospitality, hand-washing, foot-washing, and kosher laws within their symposiums. And the entertainment might range from loosening the laws of the tour a bit to allow for, let's call them dancers, or perhaps a very lively discussion on a section of Torah or one of the prophets. Or they would use these platforms to make a fool out of and degrade and shame their philosophical enemies. Remember that the Pharisees took the ritual purity laws to the extreme. So, to bring an unclean person into your home was to defile yourself, defile your house, your family, and all of your guests present in the house. We're going to examine together a blurb from Luke 7. I'll read it to you, but it will be on the overhead. I'll read it to you for the sake of those listening by podcast. One of the Pharisees invited him, Yeshua, to eat with him. He entered into the Pharisee's house and sat at the table. Behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, and when she heard that he was dining in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. Standing behind at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and she wiped them with the hair of her head kissed his feet, anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee, whose name was Simon, by the way, who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, he would have perceived who and what this kind of woman was who touches him. She is a sinner. Yeshua answered him, the Pharisee host Simon, Simon, I have something to tell you. Simon says, Rabbi, shoot. 
A certain lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they couldn't pay, he forgave them both. Which of them, therefore, will love him the most? Simon answered, well, he, I suppose, whom he forgave the most. Yeshua answered, bingo. Turning to the woman, he said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss. But she, since I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but one to whom little is forgiven, love little. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? He said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. I'm going to do something a little bit unorthodox this morning. I actually want to leave the parable about the two debtors in the background for now. What I want to do is go through this story again and point out some very, very profound details. If we could get the, the first slide in that parsha. One of the Pharisees invited him, Yeshua, to eat with him. He entered into the Pharisee's house and sat at the table. Apparently, he was not invited to recline. He was clearly relegated to the least important tier for fish sticks and potato chips. Behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, for she knew that he was in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. Alabaster, watertight, expensive. The Hebrews, I, 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 why didn't you give us technology to glaze our pottery? The Hebrews had no technology to glaze pottery, even into second temple times. When the pot mildewed, the flour inside it mildewed, and anyone who ate from within that pot mildewed. Alabaster, expensive, glazed, watertight. So this was no Crisco cooking oil that was in this nice expensive container. We can surmise that this was some, an ointment of some importance and some means. And this suggests that the oil, guess what, is kosher. If that oil has touched water in any way, it becomes unkosher. This woman comes in and cries on his feet and wipes his feet with her hair. Turning to the woman, Yeshua said to Simon the host, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. Brothers and sisters, Yeshua was invited to the house of a prominent Pharisee. Is this not gelling with you? The bare minimum that a Pharisee occupied with ritual purity would give his servants 
not to defile his home and everybody in it, was to wash their unclean, nasty feet and hands before you were allowed to enter into a Pharisee's house. Otherwise, you would defile it. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet. In other words, Simon, you didn't even acknowledge my presence when I entered your house. You didn't even introduce me to any of your other guests. You did not anoint my head with oil, which means you did not even welcome me as someone that you even recognized, that you even invited here. Yeshua, brothers and sisters, did not even get the bare, minimal treatment of a household slave. What does this all tell us, brothers and sisters, when we add all of this together? Yeshua was going to be the entertainment. Yeshua was going to be presented as the town idiot. Yeshua was going to be the butt of everyone's jokes. The Pharisee had invited Yeshua to his symposium so that, yes, a philosophical discussion of the Torah could occur, but one which the other Pharisees and Torah scholars could put the rantings and sayings of this crazy, fish-smelling Galilean who dare proclaims that he is ushering the kingdom of God? Let's bring him here and put him in his place. Yeshua was going to be the proverbial pig at the pig party. For those of you that don't know what a pig party is, you're better off not knowing. But yet, what ends up happening is that this unclean sinner woman anointed Yeshua with precious oil in the presence of these religious leaders. Anointed, brothers and sisters. What does Messiah mean? This sinful woman, by anointing Yeshua, subtly reveals to them that this man is everything that he has said that he is, that the promised Messiah was indeed in their midst. And within this is the lesson, brothers and sisters, of the kingdom of God. Two men walking on the way to Emmaus were disappointed because the Messiah did not come on a lightning bolt, wiping the Romans off the face of the earth and restoring Jerusalem to some kind of new golden age, like they had expected. But our God is so much more profound than that. He enters history and turns empire, class, power upside down. He enters and comes to a young Hebrew from a slave class and chooses him to lead, his, to lead his people out of Egypt, the strongest and most powerful empire at that time. He uses the youngest and puniest shepherd boy to knock out the most dangerous threat to his family and nation, a Philistine giant named Goliath. And now... The Hebrews are living under Roman occupation, one of the most fearsome militaries on the face of the earth, and he reveals his power through an infant, born of a virgin, placed in an animal feed container, and crucified like refuse of society on a tree, but therefore, thereby revealing his love to the lowest of the low and turns the idea of class, position, and prestige absolutely asunder. 
because the love of God does not come as some deus ex machina, supernova from heaven. It will one day. The scripture tells us it will one day, and woe Nelly when it happens. But up until today, it comes as a spark that ignites within us and smolders within our souls. I'd like to leave you today with a thought. According to the words of Yeshua himself, the kingdom of God does not come like a roaring typhoon nor an erupting volcano. The kingdom of God comes as a mustard seed. In the ancient world, mustard was used for flavor and it was also used for medicinal purposes, but it was also believed that too much of it could make you go crazy. And this wasn't good because Mustard plants were everywhere. Mustard plants were weeds, brothers and sisters, in the ancient world. They were everywhere. They grew wild. But in this, in this characteristic, is why this parable is so profound. Yeshua compares the kingdom of God to the tiniest of all seeds. But once it sprouts, it goes haywire. And no one can curtail it. And it houses and shelters the birds of the sky. Yeshua says that the kingdom of God is like yeast that a woman puts in flour and that yeast spreads itself and enlivens all that flour until the bread can feed and satisfy a multitude. And in our scripture today, the kingdom of God can even ignite and smolder within the heart of an unclean, sinful woman to teach not only the highest and mightiest of religious scholars, but most importantly, me and, and you about the loving, compassionate forgiveness of our almighty God. Shabbat Shalom, brothers and sisters.